For those who know me, you know that a daily routine is vital to my health. You know, for my meditations, my prayers, focusing on what I eat, getting my walk and my workout in. But the one thing that's been consistent for five years is I make sure I listen or read two to three minutes of good news a day. Why? There was an amazing study from Harvard from one of the most popular psychology professors, Dr. Tal Bin-Shahar, that said if you listen or watch two to three minutes of good news a day, you can actually lower your cortisol levels, which reduces inflammation and stress, the things that I needed to do. We are so proud, we are so honored and excited to announce our partnership with the one and only Good News Network. GNN has been number one on Google, Bing, or wherever you search for good news. So do yourself a favor and make GNN.org part of your morning routine to get your daily dose of good news. You realize this thing that we kind of invented on the back of an envelope, it's become a phenomenon. It's successful. We're raising tons of money. We're helping tons of kids and their mums and dads and siblings. And the hospitals love us. This is like an extra layer on the cake to help that kid. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Living Good Currency with Tony. And Tobias. We're excited. We appreciate your continued support. We can't ever thank you guys enough for subscribing and sharing and commenting because not only does it fuel us, but you guys help us get some really cool guests on here. Mm. You guys allow us to live good currency every day, which is doing good for ourselves and others. I know I feel good being up here with you, Tobias. Uh, brother, I feel good to be up here with you as well and what people may not know and maybe they've heard in the early podcast that you have a person who was previously incarcerated with a attorney <laughs> yeah i guess that's right <laughs> that is right who brother. met at the grave oh who met at the grave yeah that first episode i, I highly recommend everybody listen to it it's been uh it's been the one that people have commented the most on, and it, and it really gives you the, the background of why we're doing what we're doing. And um, you know, today we get to bring on a gentleman named Peter Samuelson, who's been a dear brother and friend for a couple of years. I've always admired his tenacity and his ability to work within the, both the for-profit and the nonprofit world, which is not easy to do. And Peter's mastered him. Yes. Peter Samuelson is an executive producer of over 25 films over the last 25 years, everything from Revenge of the Nerds to one of my favorite movies of all time, Arlington Roads. He's a public speaker, lecturer, teacher, founder, and operator of five successful Amazing. charities. Amazing. Starlight, and you'll see a little pattern here. Starlight, Starbright, mm. which he co-founded with Steven Spielberg. First Star, Edder, and Aspire Lab. Peter has also raised and contributed over $1 billion to helping many foster kids and children that are most vulnerable and sick. It, it really is incredible. I can't wait to dive into Peter's, and, he, and he's just, I feel like he's just getting started. Mm. When you, you know, whenever I talk to Peter, he just has such a, a youthful energy about him that he just motivates you to keep going. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited mm -hmm. for this. I don't think I can live up to hardly any of that, so uh, I, 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 I'll be off now. You've already lived up to it, my friend. Listen, it's so great to see you, Peter. I appreciate the time you coming on. It's been too long since we've had a chance to see each other in person. But I'm excited for this podcast because we're going to dive into details that I might not even know about from you. So the first question I have is what were some of the earlier defining moments of your life that led to such a prolific career? So the first defining thing is that I had one 11th grade teacher who kind of took me on as a project, Mr. Lund. I'm sure he had a first name, but or maybe his first name was Mr., but I, I never knew the first name. Um, and he said, see me after school. And he said, now listen, if you work about twice as hard, and if I tutor you, you can go to a really good university. And I burst out laughing. I said, I don't think so. My dad left school at 14. I don't believe anyone in my entire family has ever been to university. And Mr. Lund said, oh, well, then it'll be even better, won't it? Because you'll be the first one. So the first defining thing is that that got me on an 18-month trajectory that took me to Cambridge University and a bachelor's and a master's. The second defining thing is that how I, I was on scholarship, but they, they don't give you money to take a girl out for a coffee, you know? 
So to earn money while I was at Cambridge, I, I had good French and I started working for people who needed an interpreter, sometimes in Paris, sometimes in Morocco, sometimes in London. And interpreting is great because you meet all the people that your client is working for and you have a pocket full of business cards, you give them all your card and then they phone you and they say, I need someone on Thursday. So I would shuttle down on the train from Cambridge. I would do a bit of interpreting. I'd make some money and I'd go back to school. Eventually, those people I was working for started more and more because one thing leads to another. In the networking, they ended up being film and television people. So I increasingly, because of the networking effect, I started working for people in film and television. And eventually one of them said on the, the back end of a television commercial where I had helped them in North Africa, the guy said to me, would you like to come out to Los Angeles? You don't know anything about editing. You could see how film is edited. And I said, um, where are your offices? He said, they're in Los Angeles in Hollywood. They're on the corner of Hollywood and Vine. And I said, damn, I think I've even heard of that. Um, so the next thing I knew, you know, single man, uh, here I was in Los Angeles. Uh, I never made a conscious decision to emigrate until, you know, I, I had a green card and then the opportunity came up, I guess, five years later to go down to the convention center and raise my right hand and be sworn in. And you hold a little stars and stripes in your other hand. And I guess the second defining thing for me that pushed me to partly towards a life of service is I'm very, very much aware that the backbone of this country, whatever anyone tries to tell you, the backbone of this country is immigration. So I came and I have felt for all of these decades since that I have an affirmative obligation to give back. And that has been one of the pillars on what my five nonprofits are based. What a film producer does is to be a relentless entrepreneur. Is this a good enough idea? Am I going to put time into this? What about money? Who's going to be the crew? Who do I get to direct it? Who's going to be in it? Where do I get the money from? So when you're a film producer, you fix things and you invent things and you pull a team together and you raise money and you try to execute well. And really all that I've done, and it's my great joy, I think it, you know, not the Monty Python, the meaning of life, but the real meaning of life. I think you actually are happier when you help other people. And I've built a life, you know, going backwards and forwards between making films and making nonprofit solutions to what appear to be gigantic and intractable problems. Peter, I mean, this is a, I love hearing the story of how you got here because sometimes people do stumble upon the, the their career, but then it's about identifying your passions. And we often talk about aligning it with your purpose. And one of the things that Live in Good Currency is all about is focusing people on their purpose, which is to do good for themselves and others daily, and then aligning it with their passions, which, are, which is their desires to do things that they're, they're sort of called God, God-given talents. And so we completely agree with your, with your philosophy. It's not just in our thoughts that you're happier when you serve. We actually feel like you're aligned with the reason for which you were created was to serve both yourself and others and to do good. And, and I see that you're melding those two worlds of nonprofit, profit, being of service in both those sectors of the for-profit, nonprofit. I also find it fascinating that Mark Gordon once at UCLA, I remember at a Producers Guild uh, event, someone had asked him, what is a producer? And he said, well, it's a problem solver. And you just summed it up. I mean, that's what you've been. You're you know, both a connector and a problem solver. And you're taking the, those skills clearly. Um, and that's what fascinated me about your, your career and who you are and how you blend those worlds together. I admire you for that. What was your first, if, if, if that was the cliff note version of how you got into film, then what was, what's the backstory of what made you start your first nonprofit? 
Okay, well, so we cut forward to, I guess, 1983, and by then I had produced some films. I was living a really good life in Los Angeles, and uh, I had this cousin who had acted in a couple of little things in the UK, and I said, let me manage you. Why don't you come to Los Angeles and let's see what will happen if you try and make a go of it, and I'll help here in LA. She was still in London, And I remember phoned me and said, I've done a terrible thing. I have toured uh, the Children's Hospital, Great Ormond Street in London. And I met this little boy, 10 or 11 years old, called Sean, uh, very seriously ill, not going to make it. And I asked him what would make him happy. And he said, I want to go to Disneyland. And I think I've kind of promised him that I'm going to make that happen. Oh, my God, what do we do? And I said, well, you promised him, so we better do it, right? So again, you go back to the toolkit of a producer. Well, you know, seriously, a little boy has to come with his mom, Brenda. So we flew them over. Uh, Everyone moved into my apartment, the mom, Sean, the cousin. And for a couple of weeks, we did everything which you probably should not do with a terminally ill child. Uh, We took him on the beach. We took him out to great restaurants. He did Disneyland. He did Knott's Berry Farm. And when he went home, just a few weeks later, uh, he died. And it was the strangest thing because it was very sad. I mean, you know, the little boy lived in my home. Um, So I'd come to know him really well. It was sad in one sense, but it wasn't sad in another because we realized that we had given him the gift of laughter and joy in his last period of time. But also we'd given the mum, Brenda, something to remember her kid by other than him dying in a hospital bed. So this went around in my mind and I caught I, at the time I was partnered with Ted Field and I was running a company called Interscope. So I called a meeting after work and I stood there at the head of the table. I'd invited about a dozen people and I said, I think there must be many more children who are seriously ill. I think we've got a thing here. Why don't we try maybe two, three times a year? We could work. I'm sure hospitals would, you know, let us help. Why don't we find out what a seriously ill child wants and then we'll do it. It wasn't much more complicated than that. So we raised a tiny amount of money. We started meeting kids. Cut to the chase, the Starlight Children's Foundation is a huge multinational 501c3 and the equivalent charity with offices and services in the United States, Canada, Australia, the UK. We have raised and spent on seriously ill kids and their mums and dads and their siblings in all of those years since uh, 1984 we founded it. In all of those years we've raised and spent over one billion dollars. It's actually now well over, it's more like 1.3 billion. With the work and help and volunteering and professional staff, you know, of now thousands in fact, tens of thousands of people. But the original spark was standing at the end of the table at Interscope and saying, you know, maybe we could do one or two more of these. I mean, this is now a very well-established nonprofit here in the United States, working with 400 children's hospitals and children's wards in general hospitals, principal donors, Nintendo, Disney, etc., etc. It's It's a big deal. But the, uh, what I think is terrific about it and gives me much sort of joy is that the entire thing is based on a whimsical idea. These children are sad. We should try and make them happier. But then, of course, as always, and when you're making a film, it's more complicated than you expected. Turns out that the siblings are sad as well. The older siblings are resentful. The sick kid gets all the attention. The younger siblings are jealous of that attention. Sometimes the older siblings have guilt because they think, well, why is he going to die and I'm not? And then almost every marriage where the child is seriously ill 
is a fractured marriage. I mean, they have no time for each other. So what we do is we say, let's discuss this. How can we make you happy? Is it audiovisual stuff? I mean, we have this fantastic partnership with Lucasfilm and Lenovo, where we put virtual reality headsets on kids in hospital. What would you like to do? Would you like to swim underwater with fish? Would you like to uh, climb a mountain? The Lucasfilm people did the most brilliant immersive environment for us, where it's the droid repair facility. It's like a kind of garage for droids, but in outer space where the droids come in with, you know, the cameras hanging out and the wiring showing and, you know, they look as though they've been in war, which maybe they have. Uh, and then the fixer-upper garage mechanic droids with help interactively from the kid in a hospital bed, they fix them up and they get repainted and they go shiny and complete out the other door and on to the next one. So it's a great metaphor for children who are in hospital who need to have faith and belief in they're there to be helped. So all sorts of things we had never realized. So when we started doing it, we noticed almost immediately that if we said to a kid, we know you want to go to Disney World, but Dr. Smith says that your T-cell count is too low, so it's not safe, so you can't go to Disney World. Um, let's talk about an alternate wish, computer, puppy dog, whatever. And on occasion, the child would say, I don't want the damn dog and I don't want the damn computer. I want to go to Disney World. And we would say, well, if your T-cell count comes up or more optimistically, when it comes up and son of a gun, the following week, a sort of incredulous call from the nursing staff, kids T-cell count has gone up. And we say, oh, well, this is entirely different. Of course, you can go to Disney World. So this turns out, I mean, we used to notice it and say, don't tell anybody. It's like uh, Shirley MacLaine laying on hands or sitting under a crystal or something. You know, people are going to say it's hocus pocus. So we never talked about it. We just said the kids are sad. We make them happy. Please give us some money and we'll do it more. Then it turns out that medical science discovered this phenomenon called psychoneuroimmunology, which is the understanding which is now so profound in received medical research that the mind and the body are linked and that if you have a suppressed immune system, you become clinically depressed most often. And if you are clinically depressed, your T-cell count goes down, your immune system shrinks. So the good news is it's reversible. As you think, so shall you be. Not in every case. I mean, a kid who's been, I don't know, burned over 80% of his little body, um, you're not going to do anything with happy wishes. But in the area of the cancers, of anything where the immune system is, is, is involved, uh, you can do a great deal with generating happiness. And we have so many learned papers now written by people with too many letters after their names, it really works. And Starlight thrives. And we're so grateful to our major donors like, you know, Disney and Lucasfilm and so forth. Um, it's a wonderful thing. And that was my first one. So you get a little bit cocky. It's kind of like when you stand at the back of a theater and you hear an audience laughing at the comedy that you just produced. You think, hey, we did that. This is this really works. It resonates. Oh, look at the box office returns. So the charity equivalent of that is that you realize this thing that we kind of invented on the back of an envelope, it's become a phenomenon. It's successful. We're raising tons of money. We're helping tons of kids and their mums and dads and siblings. And the hospitals love us because at a certain point in a hospital, they don't they're doing everything they can possibly do with the science. But this is like an extra layer on the cake to help that kid and to make the kid responsive. Another thing. So we invented Michael Milken and I a long time ago, early in Starlight. I said, it's pathetic. These kids are wa watching a black and white television strapped to the far wall. And actually at County USC Medical Center, I said to a nurse, how is she supposed to change the channel if she can't get out of bed, to which the nurse said, show him 
the stick. And this little girl raises this long, like six foot long bamboo stick, which has got like surgical tape around the end of it. And she's supposed to lie there in the bed, poking like a fishing thing on the far wall to press the channel button. So um, I thought, well, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? And I started meetings with Michael Milken long before his troubles. And I said, so I've got this thing in my head. It goes over and under a hospital bed and it's got in it a monitor and something for playing video. And it should get the children's cable channels and this, that and the other. And not too complicated. You know, we need to not have the horizontal hold button reachable. It needs to just have sort of like volume and we'll have to do headsets. And I literally, I went and looked, um, I was making a film at the time and I looked at the label on the back of one of the boxes that the camera equipment was in and it said Bobadilla Cases, Los Angeles, California. So I thought, all right, here are people who know how to build boxes that are robust. And I got a meeting and I said, so, in the back of my car, I have got a hospital meal trolley. It's the thing that goes over and under the bed with a flat top, uh, which you eat your food on. And my thought is build us an enclosure, because also in the back of the car, I've got a monitor and I've got a Nintendo player and I've got this, that and the other. I think it was VHS back then, God help me. And I said, can you sort of like, build a prototype of a box on top of the trolley thing and we'll get a hospital to kind of pilot it. It was staggeringly successful. They would have the kids sign up to get it for an hour. And if there were a hundred kids in, in, in the hospital, all hundred would sign up for this thing. So we, we raised money and we started ordering these by the thousand. We've still got in the Starlight office the original one, which is so ugly. Utilitarian is too kind a word. But then Nintendo said, we love what you're doing, but the ugliness of your packaging dismays us. And we could do a much better job. To which I said, God bless. Show us what you got. So ever since they've done the design and it now is the sleekest, most beautiful thing. And of course, it also now has connectivity with video. So just as we can see each other, so can a child who's immunosuppressed and can't leave their hospital room, you know, with, with positive flow on the air conditioning and all of these terrible onerous precautions and they haven't ha hugged a parent for six months. So uh, at least with, we call them the fun centers, uh, it's the Nintendo Starlight Fun Center. So if they have one of these, they can connect with their school, they can connect with their family, they can connect with other kids who are gonna have a spinal tap next week and they can encourage them because they had their spinal tap last week across the country, you know, video conferencing, we've all cottoned on to it just like in the last, what, four or five years, but we were doing it in 1989, 1990. When, when we put, when Stephen and I brought the online network, Starbright World, to children's hospitals, the only wiring that went into hospitals was the phone line, and that wasn't good enough. We had to have men come with a trench digger to dig the trench to carry the broadband into the hospital for the very first time to connect wow. up to this thing. And it was before Wi-Fi. So actually, you, you could wire it to the kid's room, but then that was the only room it served. So you had to have multiple wires to different rooms. So then we said, well, you know, we could have rooms that don't have to look like a frightening, scary, ugly hospital kind of thing. And the parents could meet their kids there. So we started building these starlight rooms, which cost, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, but where it's very AV 
cutting edge and it's also beautifully decorated you know sometimes it's one where it's characters from Jurassic Park sometimes it's one where it's characters in the ocean you know it's fish and mermaids and stuff and the kids love it they can be wheeled in there in the in their bed not if they're immunocompromised that doesn't work but um, for most kids they can go to the starlight room and their mums and dads and sibling them there of course the whole thing is thrown into a cocked hat by covid but you know, this too shall pass. And they've been an enormous uplift. So all we've done, you know, when you make a film and you realize it's successful and people have actually paid money to go and see it, you immediately begin thinking, is there a sequel here? Is there a television series here? What else can we cobble onto this? And that's exactly what we did with Starlight, which led to Star Bright World. Okay, okay, hold on. Let's Then let's go into that transition because you mentioned a few things. Steven, which I assume that you mean Steven Spielberg, correct? Yes. So let's go into the names of your charities. So you started with Starlight. Or that's the blockbuster hit. And now you're looking for your sequel. It's one of the major mistakes that I've made. You know, things that feel like a good idea at the beginning. And then you say, why the hell did I do this? Talk about the law of unintended consequences. So I called the first one Starlight, the Starlight Children's Foundation, because in the initial organizing meeting, there was this beautiful young woman who um, I'd had one date with her. It was back when I was single. And um, when the lawyer said, OK, so I need to form a 501c3 uh, and what do, what do we want to call it? And I said, oh. I don't know. And it was this young lady who I'd only really honestly invited because she was an accountant. And I figured you always need an accountant, right? Especially a volunteer accountant. She said, why don't we call it Starlight, the Starlight Children's Foundation? And another person in the room said, you know, I do logos as a hobby. I, in my mind, I can see a child reaching for a star. And that has been ever since the logo. Up to there, I did right in the branding. But then um, when I started working with Stephen on Starbright, which obviously also needed a name and which was going to cooperate a lot as the distribution for Starlight, but it needed its own name and it needed to be its own 501c3. Um, I thought, well, Starlight is the first word of the children's rhyme that I've been hearing since I was little. Starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might, have this wish I wish tonight. I thought, oh, that sounds really good. We'll call it star bright. So that the online became star bright world. And then of course, um, the third nonprofit that I founded, um, first star, well, starlight, star bright, first star. First Star is, I don't know whether you want to go into that, but First Star has nothing to do with... Oh, we're definitely going to dive into First Star. Okay. Well, it has nothing to do with seriously ill kids. It has to do with foster kids. Okay, okay. So tell me about the transition from Starlight to Star Bright and how Steven Spielberg helped make all that happen. So I got an introduction to Steven Spielberg. It's maximally scary. I'd never met him before. You pitch up at his office at Amblin which is on the Universal Studios lot. The second assistant assistant says, um, do not give Mr. Uh, Spielberg the collateral material. You leave that with me. You have 15 minutes. Um, he's got the ambassador from somewhere or other coming on the hour. So you go in there and your first reaction to Stephen is he's an awfully nice man who looks exactly like Steven Spielberg. It's kind of like, you know, you're thinking, oh, it's this is this is really him. So I, I'm talking to him and I'm saying it's a it should be a new charity. And I believe that we use this newfangled thing uh, that Al Gore has invented called the Internet. And we use it to introduce kids without any attention to distance. So we could have kids in you know, Sloan Kettering talking to kids at County USC Medical Center and seeing them. 
And he said, oh, we can do even better than that. He said, you know, you can build a three-dimensional world and there are these things called avatars and the kids could choose their own avatar. And when we launched Starbright World, Stephen's avatar was E.T. He was the only one that was ever allowed to, to use E.T. But they could like navigate together. He said, I don't know, when two avatars bump heads, that opens up the video chat, something. I mean, he's the most amazing man because he just sort of embroidered on my pathetic little idea. And suddenly it's this thing. So and I'm, I keep looking at my watch and I'm thinking, oh, it's uh, half past. Been here 45 minutes. OK. Don't know what happened to the ambassador, but God bless. Oh, I've been here an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, hour 45. So eventually he said, what do you want me to do? And I said, be the chairman. I'll put it together. We'll pull a board together, pulling in people who would never otherwise meet people from the entertainment industry, producer, director, writer, actor, voiceover artist, etc. People from the world of hospitals and medical research, especially this new area of psychoneuroimmunology. Um, and then um, we, we, you know, we will have to raise money. He said, well, if we're going to raise money, I should give some money. And I said, I think that would be really good. You can be the chairman. That would be excellent. Thank you for suggesting it. He said, what do you think I should give? And I said, I have no idea. And furthermore, even if I had an idea, there is no way that I'm telling Steven Spielberg what he should give to charity. I, he said, no, name a number. I can always say no, but I really want you to give me a number that you think would be meaningful. And I said, I think I shouldn't give you a number. You should just give something moderately painful. And he said, oh. no, no, give me a number. And I said, I'm not going to oh. give you a number, Stephen. Uh, and he said, you can't leave until you give me a number. So it was like a face off. And I said, OK, OK. I cry, uncle. I think maybe two, two and a half million dollars. And I saw his mouth say, OK, I can do that. And I we he gave me a hug. I came out of his office. I went into the parking lot and hid behind a tree. I called by then I was married. I called my wife, Sarah, and I said, I've just had an out of body experience. I believe I've just met Steven Spielberg. We now have another nonprofit and uh, I, he's going to donate the first two and a half million dollars. And I, 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 I think I might be hallucinating. She said, you don't feel safe to drive. I will come and get you. Tell me exactly where you are. And she did. And on the Monday following, a guy called Jerry Breslauer phoned and said, I am Mr. Spielberg's business manager. I've been told to wire you two and a half million dollars. And I said, that's wonderful. He said, well, you want to give me account information? And I said, well, we actually haven't formed the entity yet, let alone opening the bank account. Could you give me a week and I'll I'll get on the stick and I'll see what I can do. And I, I phoned it back a week later and I said, OK, we exist. Here's the account number, sorting code and all of that. And the money arrived. And that was the beginning of Starbright. Wow. Okay. Why two and a half million? And how'd you even come up with that number? No idea. You know, you as a film producer, especially in these days of Netflix and, you know, Amazon Prime and so forth, you want to name a number that you think is in the in the upper end. They say, well, what's this going to cost? You, you, you know, you've run five budgets, but you want to actually raise as much as you can plausibly raise um, because you can always make the film for less than that and that delta is the um, is, is your profit because um, there is no other back end with a streaming company so I guess I mean honestly it's a long time ago I don't really remember I just thought it was a plausibly large number remember that in Starlight back then I had never raised more than fifty thousand dollars from a wow. from a donor, so it was it was. Kind of, but on the other hand, none of them were Steven Spielberg, so it was kind of ambitious. Um, but we had a lot of fun. I mean, we were 
putting people in one room that would never otherwise have met. You created the metaverse back then. Well, and it was the real deal. I mean, we 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 had avatars. There were three worlds. You could choose a world, and then you could choose your avatar. And it was, if you can believe this, it was before they invented the mouse. So the only way you could move your avatar was with the up, down, left, and right keys. So it was kind of like Etch-a-Sketch, remember them? Where you could only turn at a right angle, um, but you could do a diagonal with lots of little left, right, up, left, up, left, up, left, and it would sort of take you in a zigzag up to the left. So um, we, um, we, you know, the power of Stephen's name and Stephen's sort of kindness um, we immediately raised Paul Allen um, from Vulcan, co-founder of Microsoft, gave us six million bucks, said this is a really good idea, do it. Um, and then we got Intel to work on the, um, the chips in the cameras. A lot of it had to be sort of invented because it just didn't exist. So Knowledge Adventures um, did the software and we were so cutting edge and it was an interesting phenomenon Companies that would otherwise be competitive were willing to cooperate because they have kids and grandkids as well. And they sort of thought it was more important than their competitiveness. And, um, uh, it, it, you know, companies can, not in every case, but companies can have a soul. If the people running a company have a soul. Well, then the company has a soul, you know, Tom's shoes, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, et cetera, et cetera. So if you find the right people in a company and also, of course, uh, increasingly in the last 10 years, companies realize that their principal retail constituency is young people, millennial and younger. And we know from the Gallup survey that millennials uh, in 85% of cases, say that they will change brands if there is a pro-social proposition on brand B. So suddenly you arrive and you say to a large retail-facing company, uh, we can involve your staff, we can involve your customers, we can work with your advertising people, and we can really do a number here. And the other thing that is fascinating is how you can break a logjam of negotiation by being a third party, a charity. So you have a manufacturer that needs shelf space and they want end caps in whatever the store is. And then you have the store that would like to get the product as inexpensively as possible and not to disturb their shelf space. Suddenly in comes the charity and says, we'd like to call a meeting with both lots of people because we think this is really important for serious little children, foster kids, the homeless, whatever it is, one, whatever thing I'm working on. And you can get people to be willing to do things. I Very early this morning, we negotiated for my fourth nonprofit, which is called EDAR, which is the acronym Everyone Deserves a Roof. So we needed um, storage space in Chatsworth. We got a 50% discount on the rate card from this company with a bloody great warehouse. Why? Well, I think because not, I didn't do it, but my colleague, Mark Onoroff, moved the lady's heart on the phone. And she said, the best I can do is a 50% discount, to which Mark said, God bless you. Yes, please. I'll give you my email address for the contract. I think I see the constant theme of problem solving, right? And having the audacity to think big and dream big. I mean, clearly First Star was your huge success and gave you the confidence and the notoriety to walk into a room with Steven Spielberg, which was scheduled for 15 minutes and you came out with two and a half million dollars in him as the chairman of your board. It seems like your life has been a series like most of us of dominoes that either lead to success or lead to experiences that we can learn from. And had you had that meeting with Spielberg for First Star and not Starbright, 
I wonder if you'd have the same outcome. It's just amazing when you reflect and think about people's lives and the series of events that we have to go through to build our confidence. There's another phenomenon which needs to be mentioned. So my mother-in-law is a psychologist and I've had breakfast with her every Tuesday morning for decades. And it's like, free therapy with scrambled eggs. Great. And she said to me, I was talking to her about, it's uncanny, you know, Louise, how when I need something, it falls out of the sky. You wouldn't believe how often I sit on an airplane and I'm sitting there thinking, I've got to find someone in Australia. And I start talking to the woman next to me who says, yeah, I'm emigrating. I'm a grandma now. I'm going down there. I just retired from business in the UK. And I just, you know, the you can't fly nonstop from London to Sydney. So the I had to change planes in Los Angeles. And, and I'm sitting with this woman and she became the founder of Starlight Australia. My mother-in-law said to me, what do you know about Maimonides? And I said, I know absolutely nothing about Maimonides. And she said, well, you need to do a bit of Googling. And look at look at what Maimonides said about the soul. So Maimonides turns out to be a great rabbi born in Spain, but lived in Alexandria, Egypt, at a time where the great religious leaders, regardless of religion, palled around and had lunch and quoted each other, the great Iman of the Muslim faith and the, the, the this Jewish rabbi and the, the Christian patriarch. They were mates. They were pals. And um, so he wrote about the soul and he said there are three layers of the soul. The base one, everybody's got that. And the middle one is like a sort of better version of that. He said now the highest one, which has a name, it's called the Neshuma. Um, not everybody has it. It's, it's quite rare. But still, there are a lot of people who do have a Neshuma. And what it is, you don't own it. It is like a membership society. It's the membership society of everybody who feels possessed to make the world a better place. And he said, and what you will find is that when two people with this highest level of the soul meet for the first time, they say to each other, Hineni, Hebrew for here I am. What do we need to do? And I thought to myself, you know, it's true. Every, I don't know, 50th, 100th person, there is something that defines the relationship in 10 minutes, even though I only just met them or sat next to them on a plane or some damn thing like that, and where I would do kind of anything for them. You know, if they phoned me and said, I know this is short notice, but there's a real opportunity and I need your help. Can you be in Tokyo on Thursday? Uh, I would have to go to Tokyo um, and vice versa. And I realized that a, um, a sort of layer in the cake of what I've done philanthropically is meeting these higher level of the soul people, bonding with them and then working together so that one and one makes about 150. Uh, and we do something that I probably couldn't have done on my own or vice versa. Um, it can be lonely being a film producer or being any other kind of entrepreneur. You need soulmates who will help you. You, you need people who, when there is a challenge, which there often is, will not say, oh, God, what are we going to do about that? Whoa, that's a huge issue, right? Um, you want people who say, how about this? Here's the straw man. What if we, and then if, because what a film producer does, once you're making a film, you can't say, well, the door was locked so we couldn't get in. You have to go around the back and see if they left a window open or something or other. You, you, you have to solve. If your director wants to put the camera on top of that building the fact that the building is dark and uninhabited is not going to stop you somehow getting your damn camera on the top of that building. And you do those things, you know, 10 times a day. When you take that toolkit over to nonprofit, where it rarely goes, not often enough, 
you know, um, scrappy entrepreneurial nonprofits, new solutions for old problems. Who was it? Was it Einstein who said we're never going to solve old problems uh, with 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 the way we dealt with them, in, you know, that caused them? Um, we, we need new thinking. And then what that brings with it is you have to raise money for these things. And almost always you cannot raise money for a new idea from traditional sources. The government will not give you money. Companies will not give you money. And uh, established charities and foundations will not give you money if you can't prove it works. So like when I started First Star, I, I got myself a meeting with the um, uh, vice chancellor of UCLA, Gene Block, another one of these 15 minutes that went an hour and a half. And I said, here's I'll, I'll give you the, the goal of the meeting first, if I may. And he said, sure, that's good. And I said, OK, I want you to allow me and my nonprofit to house, educate and encourage high school aged teenage foster kids in the middle of your campus with the goal of removing the glass ceiling and getting at least the same proportion of them into colleges and universities as non foster kids. And I was there endlessly with him. And he said, yes, at the end of the meeting. And then he said, where is the money going to come from? And I said, I don't really know, but I think it's a huge idea. And I think if we pitch the fact that the IQ of foster kids, 533,000 of them in the United States is no different than the IQ. It's the same bell curve of IQ. What's happened is they've gone to shitty schools. They've changed placements 22 times. Everyone a new school, you know, with different books and teachers and buildings. And it, it's so discombobulating that they get crappy grades. And that feeds into a lack of ambition and a sort of fatalistic coupled with the PTSD from the original abuse or neglect. And now you've got a perfect storm that's a hiding to nowhere. And within two years of aging out in foster care, out of foster care, um, half of all American foster kids uh, are either incarcerated or they are unhoused or they are dead uh, or they are uh, indigent. And, um, you know, people on our streets, average life expectancy, 40. Uh, and it's it's like the principal driver of people into the prison industrial complex. And I said to Gene Block, I think we can do better. But if we want these kids to go to college, we have to do three things, it seems to me. One, we have to give them the absolutely best academics, because if they don't pass the SAT or the ACT, they're not going to college, are they? Well, guess what? Here we are at UCLA. You have a ton of grad students and undergraduates and faculty and administrators who know a thing or three about teaching, right? So we might get volunteers. The second thing we have to do is life skills. We, when, when First Star is first in touch with teenage foster kids, a lot of them don't know how to brush their teeth. How can that possibly be? Well, because no sane adult ever took 20 minutes to show them. So, you know, their teeth are rotting in their head. You have to sort all of that out. So I said life skills is a very important thing. It, it, it has to do not just with your teeth, but also have you ever had your eyes checked? Why is it you always sit at the front of the class? You know, which most kids don't want to sit at the front of the class. Read the little letters over there. Ah, you need glasses, man. Come on. Uh, so these simple fixes, life skills, financial literacy, I never did know what was the difference between a debit card and a credit card. I would love to know that, that kind of stuff. And I said the third area is everything psychosocial. It's the kumbaya. It's come on, look around you. I know you're 14 and most of the undergrads here are between 18 and 22. Um, but they are actually an older version of you. They look like you. They look like the big brother that you haven't seen for years, except they've really done well. They're going to one of the 
top 10 ranking universities in the whole wide world. They have scholarships for foster kids, but you got to pass the SAT and we will help you. Think of it this way. It's a ladder. If you fall off the ladder for the next four years, we will absolutely pick you up and put you back on the ladder. But in the end, you are the only human being who has control of the muscles in your legs and can walk up the rungs. And if you do what we help you do, you will nine times out of 10 go on to colleges and universities. You heard me say in the United States, non-foster kids, the conversion from 12th grade to colleges and universities is about 45%. Uh, for foster kids, it's 9%. Our kids, we now have 18 of these academies, um, each a partnership with a great big university, all the way from Los Angeles to Miami via Chicago and New York and etc. Um, and um, our conversion rate, honest to God, average last three years, all the academies, 87% of our kids oh, against the benchmark of 9%. Proving what? Well, proving that a university is a whole hell of a good place to get help for kids who academically and in acclimatization need an arm around the shoulder. You know, we hire youth coaches who are paid and who live with the kids in the dorms when we're in a residential session, all again, thrown into a cocked hat uh, by COVID, but it's a sign of how disciplined our kids become and how self-interestedly dedicated to their homework and this and that, that what we've had to do during the COVID, blessedly, it's now, I hope, knocking on wood, it, the COVID, you know, who knows what Omicron is going to do. But we're, we're back in face-to-face -face sessions now uh, in most of our academies. But even with the COVID, that 87% is robust. It didn't go down this last year. Uh, because the kids are damned if anyone's going to, they, they now understand the huge benefits of going to college or university. How about four years plus of extra accommodation paid for by your scholarship? So you can't be homeless, right? How about these really exciting, cool kids who are saying, you know, I, I hear them at dinner. I hear the youth coach who's 22 saying to the 15-year-old first star kid, Seriously, you want to sweep the floor in McDonald's the whole rest of your life? Why would you want that? I'm going to be an architect. Come on, you think I'm smarter than you? I'm not smarter than you. I just did my homework. Let me help you with it. Algebra is not impossible. Everything has an answer. I'll help you. I will not let you fail, but you've got to do the work. And it, it, it absolutely works. And it's now at the beginning of it, I used to have to go and persuade universities to let us in. Now, we, I get emails from the president of this university and the chancellor of that university and the, the, the provost and, the you know, saying, can I know more about this? I was at a conference and so-and-so from um, um, City University of New York was telling me how brilliant it is. Is it something that we could apply to become a partner? And furthermore, how do we pay for it? I'm sure eventually I'm going to meet a university leader who will say, thank God you have come. We have so much excess money here. We've been looking for something that we can throw it at, but I've never met anybody yet who said that. We always have to get local donors and national donors, and we get money from the government, and we just had a hilarious thing in First Star. So um, I got a meeting with Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and I was telling him about First Star, and he said, well, how can I help? And I said, well, I at the moment, we've got academies in Southern California, but we don't have any in Northern California. And I think if we had one as a sort of demonstration site in Sacramento, I think we would be able and you would be able to bring people to see it. And then we could replicate elsewhere. But we don't have one. He said, what would that cost? And I said, off the top of my head, for the four years, grades 9, 10, 11 and 12, I would say, $750,000 plus or minus. He said, okay, let me see what I can do. And then I thought, I remember having the conscious thought, well, another one of those meetings that leads nowhere. Uh, the phone rings and it's a journalist from the Sacramento Bee. 
is this Mr. Samuelson? Are you the president of First Star? Oh, I wonder if I could have a quote from you, sir, um, about the line item in the California state budget. And I said, perhaps we could start by you reading me what it actually says so that I know what to how best to comment on it. Because Gavin never told me he just did it. $750,000 in last year's California state budget. So we've launched at Sacramento State and uh, it's going really, really well up there. And we're dragging in members of the assembly and the Senate and this and that. And, you know, DCFS and the HHS and all the other poobahs that are up there. And they're nothing like having them meet the kids to sell the concept. So back to what I was saying, how do you fund something that is not yet provable? And the answer is it's not government, it's not companies, it's not established charities. I'll tell you who it is. It is our new Medici who take a lot of stick. It is wealthy and ultra wealthy people who have a three person committee. You know, grandpa made a lot of money the children have got MBAs and JDs and all the rest of it. The grandchildren are a little bit aimless, but they they would like their money back. They would like to invest, but they would also like to make the world a better place. And I call them the new Medici. Who were the Medici? The Medici were a <coughs> textile family business in Italy before the Renaissance. Their claim to fame is that they invented the Renaissance. How did they do that? They befriended and gave their patronage, aka money, to very smart people who were floundering and couldn't get support anywhere. So an example, they had a tutor in math for their teenage kids. And this guy was sitting in a chair in the great hall of one of the Medici castles and he looked up at the chandelier and he realized that the rope on which the chandelier was hanging made a perfect right angle with the floor. And he thought to himself, isn't that interesting? Because I've been in all their castles, the whole length of, of Italy and then some. And it always makes a perfect right angle, 90 degrees to the floor. But... If the earth is flat, well, then the outer ones would have to make an angle if they are attracted to the same source of magnetic pull. Aha, the earth is not flat. It must be a sphere. First human being to ever have that thought. And then he thought, and you know what? The sun does not revolve around the earth. The Earth and the other planets must revolve around the sun. So he started publishing his papers. The Catholic Church were going to burn him at the stake. They were going to literally kill him for heretical behavior. The Medici said, no, 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 no. He is one of our people and you will not be burning him at the stake. They were also the people. Everybody was sending exploratory ships sometimes several ships at a time over to the new world to explore. Everybody just sent merchants and sailors. Sailors sail the ship, merchants go and find whatever and bring it back and make a profit. Medici didn't do that. They did send sailors to sail the ship and merchants to do the commerce, but they also sent artists, sculptors, botanists, other kinds of scientists, medical doctors, and they forced collaboration between silos of knowledge because they'd all sit there having three meals a day on the journey over and then on the journey home. And by the time they actually got there, they'd worked out ways that they could help each other. And that was the beginning of multidisciplinary thinking, all of which would not have happened for some period of time uh, without the Medici. So the new Medici are these people who Donald Trump's tax cuts have made so wealthy. I mean, the people who have done really well 
in the COVID and the few years before the COVID are people who started off that period um, incredibly wealthy. Now they're double and triple incredibly wealthy. But that doesn't mean that they do not care about their wealth. They're all worried by climate change, just like everybody else is. And they also, their hearts are moved by the plight of seriously ill kids or foster kids or the old lady sleeping on a piece of cardboard under the overpass. What you learn, the other attribute of being a film producer, is you learn how to pitch. If you are no good at pitching, you never get a film finance. Because think of what a pitch is. You've got this idea, you might have a script, but they won't read your script because they're too busy. You have nine minutes to place into their mind and into their heart the story in such manner that they will feel empathy. They will identify with the hero and the hero's challenges or whatever it is, and they will then say, you hope, doesn't always work, but it works quite a lot if you're any good at pitching. Um, they will say, I get it. I get it. How can I help you? Well, I need to pay for the script. It's $150,000. I can do that. Okay. What would I get in return? You'd get an executive producer credit. You get your money back with a 20% premium on principal photography, and you get to come to the set. Would there be premieres? Probably, COVID allowing, yes. Would I be able to come to the premieres? Yes. Um, would I be able to bring my grandkids to the premieres? You certainly would. And, and, and your wife, uh, you bring whoever you want to the premiere, help us get this film financed. My new company, Filmco, P-H-I-L-M-C-O, filmcomedia.com, is based entirely on investment by high net worth and ultra high net worth people, and obviously revenue from selling projects to streamers and whoever. Um, but it is based on the fact that every film that we make and television series and limited series and all the rest of it, um, narrative fiction and documentaries and so forth, all of it has a double bottom line. We are the Tom's shoes of media. Because what we're saying is, if we make this film, we will partner with between one and five nonprofits, and we will work with them throughout the process, and we won't embark on the film unless we have an activation campaign already planned where we will work to serve the goals of the nonprofits using the film or whatever it is as the spark plug. That is the premise of Filmco. It really, really, really works. Again, you discover these things you never realized in the first place. S among significant actors of high quality and star power, just about all of them would also like to make meaningful films. Doesn't mean they're not going to make the next superhero distractive entertainment, whatever, that's the payday, but they all actually have lost a relative to cancer. So the thing we're doing with the American Cancer Society resonates for them, or they're deathly worried about climate change. So the thing that we're doing with Mary Robinson, the president of, ex-president of Ireland, um, that's about um, climate injustice, um, that resonates for them and on and on and on. We have people who have seen with their own eyes the effect of the prison industrial for profit complex and or that have experienced foster care and have seen how when foster care is run for profit, it's crap and it's unnecessary. And I'm a big capitalist, but we should go make a buck somewhere else. You know, leave the kids alone. There are a few things that you do not wish to be run for profit because it's awful. One of them is foster care. Another one is when the firefighters arrive at your house, you'd really like to not have to have them run your credit card before they put the flames out. There are things, you know, that, that need to be done in the public benefit. And in the case of foster care, it should be run relentlessly in the best interests of the individual children. Well, Peter, I'm going to say this, brother. Thank you. I've sat here for an hour and I've never been more inspired, engaged, 
and um, simply humbled by what you have, have given us. I'm pretty sure we're going to have to call you back concerning that three-layer soul. The Neshama, um, quite familiar, it resonated uh, deeply with my experience, you know, 30 years incarcerated. And as you've said, right now, uh, L.A. County is going to release 1,400 children who are aging out of the foster care system. And we're on the grassroots level of seeking to create opportunities. And in your story, it's really amazing. One a teacher uh, seeing something in you that apparently you didn't see in yourself. Then a business a constituent said, are you willing to travel? And you said, I've heard about this place. And then a friend of yours said, I've done something that is unspeakable. I promised an ill child that I was going to take them to a place of their greatest imagination. And so as you walked us through uh, your thinking, your, 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 your strategy, uh, your sitting with uh, your, your mother-in-law uh, all the way up to these last endeavors, um, I simply tell you uh, uh, thank you. And I've never been more quiet and silent on a podcast because normally I have so much to say about the prison, industrial complex, foster children, children homelessness, uh, how are we going to address these issues? And uh, you've given us... Us, uh, not only the blueprint socially, but spiritually. So as we talk about doing good for ourselves and others and earning a good brother, uh, it's not too many people I've been impressed with in my life, period. And uh, you are an impressionable uh, human being. And when Tony told me about you, you know, Tony, Tony knows a lot of people in Hollywood, so he says a lot of good stuff. But brother, you are number one in my book. So just so many uh, things that I would like to talk and discuss and we can connect with what Tony and I are doing and the guys on our end. Uh, simply, I know our time is up, but uh, you already know we're those souls and we're here and we're going to hold you <laughs> to what you said. And, uh, I'm just thank uh, you and our listeners. If you ever hear Tobias Tubbs quiet, then you know that uh, I'm in the room with a Jedi or a Yoda or whatever he was to call himself and I need to be quiet and suck it all up so I can live it in real time. So I just want to tell you, thank you, thank you, uh, thank you for all the beautiful work that you're doing and for you inspiring me, Tony, and our our, our, our crew because uh, we're going to come on out and get it put it together so we can get back with you and get some of this good work done. Well, thank you. And what the two of you are doing with Living Good Currency is a kind of breeder reactor, you know? I mean, you're, you're, you're creating fission um, between listeners and speakers and from that comes the Medici um, phenomenon finding the entrepreneur and vice versa I love it it's um, you know it's it's the best use of a podcast that I can think of recently so there you go coming from you that's everything Peter, Peter your soul is so powerful in the way in which you are problem solving, you're actually, this conversation, this hour has put so much perspective in my life on what I'm doing. A, I want to thank you uh, for coming on this podcast because I now feel like we're part of that membership. And brother Peter, we thank you. As you said, we're on that third level of connected souls and uh, this journey has just begun. Yes, sir. Peter, we appreciate you. We're all part of this new Medici. We're excited about that. For all those who want to learn more and honestly check out Peter's amazing TED Talk, go to samuelson.la and follow Peter on social. Don't forget to check out new episodes every Monday. We're super excited about this. I'm Peter Samuelson. I'm Tony Samadani. I'm Tobias Tubbs. And we are Living, living Good, good currency. currency.